Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. Hi, everybody, and thank you for Hanken Podcast. My name is Katrin Ousienen. I'm a doctorant at Hanken School of Economics at Department of Commercial Law and a visiting researcher at UC Berkeley Law School at the Center of Law and Technology. I'm currently conducting empirical research on legal design and ethics in commercial contracts. Today, I have the pleasure to have two great ladies joining me to talk about legal design. First, I have uh, Viveka Falenius, who is the founder of Chendol Brew, a company focusing on legal design, law, in back and yoga, driven by a desire to infuse more empathy and innovation in the legal sector and beyond. Viveka is an international lawyer from Sweden with a law degree from Aix-Marseille, and Master two from Strasbourg and an LLM from Stanford Law School. She has worked 10 years in Brussels at the European Commission, at the law firm, and as a lobbyist, and three years as a tech lawyer and legal futurist in Sweden. She is passionate about leadership, sustainability, personal growth, yoga, and how to design your life for well-being and purpose. I also have a Marie Potil Saville, is the founder and CEO of Amurapi. She was previously the vice president, legal emir at Estee Lauder Companies in Europe after three years and as a legal manager, Europe at Channel. As a private practice lawyer, she has worked about 12 years at Frisfields, Allen and Overy, at Creel and Carcia Cuella. Aisa in Enriquez in London, Brussels, Paris, and Mexico City. So we have a really international setting in here, professional and international. Thank you already beforehand for sharing your views with us on legal design. In my work in process in the academic framework, I have defined legal design in action as follows. I have defined it as a tool and ongoing process that brings to and access to efficiency and ethics of products, services and processes. And that it assesses the total value of impact of design by using economic analysis of law-based approach, design thinking approach and empirical findings. It also brings numerical and demonstrable data of the impact of design and thereby improves evaluation transparency, equality, efficiency, and the support of processes, decision, and policymaking. An interdisciplinary approach of other fields of science, whether it be service design, law and technology, behavior economics, psychology, neuroscience, and economics, just to name a few, are used to support this human and user-centered, visual, ethic, and empowering approach to law. Legal design can be applied to services, products, and processes. It sounds like a really sharp definition in the, in the academic framework. And undoubtedly, in the definition, there were quite a many advantages of legal design that were mentioned. What about Viveka? What advantages do you see in using design thinking methods? 
Uh, yeah, hi. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored to be part of the podcast. Uh, and to return to the question, I think when I discovered design thinking at Stanford back in 2014, it really resonated with me. And I think there are mainly three advantages that I really want to uh, emphasize. So the first important advantage for me is the consistent focus on the user. So throughout the whole process, the focus is on the user. And I think maybe it sounds obvious, but in a lot of other contexts, we easily forget the user. So if you think of it, if we develop or improve a product or service, are we really keeping the user's feelings and needs in mind all the time? I don't think so. So here, though, this idea of human-centric design makes sure that whatever solution we finally come up with is actually what we call desirable and meets a real need. So that means that all the time, all the money, all the effort we put in is going to be well invested. Uh, a second amazing advantage uh, is the mindset. And I really love this because it's all about how we listen, how we empathize, collaborate and embrace each other's ideas. It's about practicing out of the box thinking and being able to shift perspective. So this mindset is really useful in the design thinking process. But the skills you develop are actually also usable in pretty much any situation, like in your private life or at work. So sometimes people call these skills soft skills. But knowing what the world looks like today, I think they're really power skills. And it's what the world desperately needs more of. So I think practicing this mindset will also make you a better leader. And again, better leadership is something that the world really needs right now. So for me, Contributing to this shift in mindset is one of the reasons why I find it so meaningful and why I love to spread design thinking to individuals and companies. And then the third advantage that I would um, raise is the flexibility of the method. So you can apply, apply design thinking by the book, like with a really big team, diverse and everything, and do it step by step and reach amazing results. But you can also just start out small explored and use the process and mindset on your own and that can also have really huge effects and takes take you uh, unexpected places so i think that's one of the strengths that we can all start to apply it immediately i i couldn't be agreeing more what you were saying what about you mary uh, what advantages do you see in using design thinking methods Hi, Katrin, and thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm, I'm very happy to be able to share views with you and Viveka. It's an amazing floor, so thanks for that. Um, I'm, I'm like you, Katria. I couldn't agree more with uh, everything that Viveka said. Uh, if I can maybe add um, maybe a slightly different perspective, I, I didn't train um, at uh, the D school. I trained at a design school, which is called NC in Paris. And it's a very complementary approach because um, so obviously um, it focuses more on design itself than design thinking. And um, they taught us something quite interesting in terms of the etymology, uh, the etymology of the word design. Um, it comes from disegno, which means both drawing um, and purpose. And in practice, um, it means that before creating any object, um, say, for example, uh, you ask a designer to design a chair, well, 
a designer would first question the very purpose of this chair. Is it a chair to work? Is it to eat? Is it just to step by? Is it to dream? Um, you might uh, have in mind the, the famous lounge chair by uh, Charlotte Perrion, um, wrongly attributed to Le Corbusier, by the way. But anyway, that, that's um, you know, a complementary uh, definition that we can add to what you previously said. And it's only after having defined the purpose for the user that a designer would be able to find the form of the object that would enable the function of the object. So, you know, it's, it's obviously a reference to uh, Sullivan's famous quote, form follows function. So in itself, design um, has this amazing potential, um, this amazing depth and, and richness uh, from graphic design where, you know, if you only focus on typography, if it is well chosen, you can already send a very clear message. But it also covers, obviously, UX design, but also service and strategy design. So what the, the point um, about design, whether you call it design thinking, because you tend to apply it more to services and strategy, or, or simply design as, a, as an approach to create objects and services, um, Obviously, it leverages the same user centricity that Viveka um, mentioned very clearly. And I think, you know, um, the, the real point um, about this user centricity is that um, the law lacks usability. That's obvious to everyone. Uh, if you can ask in-house lawyers, you can ask uh, citizens, you can ask even private practice lawyers. Um, legal documents and legal processes simply are not meant to be really used other than for by other lawyers and or, or judges. And what's really interesting and very powerful about design is that it's obsessed with usability. Um, so the main advantage, I would say, of designing the law is to ensure that all these legal documents, the contracts, the compliance programs, and all the legal processes are not going to stay in a cupboard, uh, but on the contrary, will empower the users to first easily access, second, understand, and three, know what to do with these legal documents or processes. So essentially, it empowers um, the law to become a tool for action. And in, in my view, um, usability of the law is absolutely critical for the world if you consider that ultimately the purpose of the law is to enable men to live with one another. So obviously we need to, to be able to use the law to enable uh, just life in, in society. That is so true. And, and you're both working on this. You both are working within legal design within your own practicing. So you are actually bringing this legal design in action. So Mari, you are working as a founder of Amurapi in France, whereas Viveka uh, is working as a founder of Chondorview in Stockholm. But what about Mary? What impact do you see that legal design has on commercial practice when you do it on your everyday work? What do you think? Well, I have to confess that um, I'm slightly obsessed with KPIs. So um, I've been measuring our impact since day one, since, since I, I founded Amoravia in 2018. Um, so 
I think, you know, uh, to talk about uh, about any impact, uh, and, and you, I know that you, this is your daily work, Katrin, um, <laughs> it has to go beyond talking. <laughs> it's about oh, evidence yes. and, and, and methodology <laughs> of measurement. So let me just give you a concrete example. Um, in a contractual process redesign um, for Renault, um, we enabled the in-house lawyers at Renault to save two and a half hours per person per week. Uh, what's really interesting about this project, and it goes back to um, what Viveke was saying as well, um, about you know the big projects, but also the small steps that each and every one of us can do. What's interesting about this project is that the process was quite short, limited amount of time, and with a limited budget. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this methodology is so powerful, you know, focusing, truly focusing on the users with empathy is so powerful that you don't have to launch a huge project, you know, with a large budget and, and a very, very uh, large team. Um, in, in that particular case, um, the contractual process concerned a sales team, which was relatively junior. And these, this sales team had to negotiate um, on their own with more seasoned buyers at the other end. Um, and, you know, we found out during the workshops with the users that they ended up calling the legal division from their car a couple of minutes <laughs> before the meeting uh, asking, oh, my God, what do I have to say to sound legal? And, you know, we found about uh, these pain points in only a two hour, well, in, in two various two hours working sessions with lawyers and users. I mean, it's a fairly limited amount of investment, right? It's only two hour sessions. Um, so from there, the solution was relatively obvious. We had to provide the sales team with a full overview of the process at a glance so that um, you know they could check it easily in their car because <laughs> that's uh, what the user journey uh, taught us. It obviously had to be phrased uh, and drafted in business terms which were familiar to them so they could easily identify to the situation and very quickly find the relevant um, situation compared to their own. Uh, obviously, they had to easily access the document on their mobile phone. Um, and then all they had to do was to click on their particular stage of negotiation. And they, they could not just access the right agreement template, but also the arguments they could use um, in their negotiation, uh, the key negotiation arguments, the fact that you know, they wanted to push their own template and, uh, and not uh, have to work uh, with the, the other parties' uh, template. And also, they, they, we provided some clear fallback options and no-goes. I think um, this, is, this is an interesting example in terms of impact um, because, again, the, the investment is fairly limited and the efficiencies were obvious. Um, and the way we did it was also uh, by leveraging neuroscience experts with whom we collaborate quite closely and neuroscience science studies um, that 
provide very efficient tool when you design um, to maximize engagement on legal documents and maximize understanding. So, for example, if you think um, compliance programs, you know, anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, uh, data protection, you name it, <laughs> it's usually, you know, users are quite reluctant to engage with these documents. Well, if thanks to neuroscience, you can actually uh, double the engagement and measure it accurately, then it's absolutely key in terms of risk management, which is essentially uh, a lawyer's job. Uh, beyond KPIs themselves, uh, I'd like to mention um, something else that I've seen, and I'm, I'm happy to share that and, and have your views. Um, on our projects, we've seen another type of impact happening. Um, it's a bit less measurable, uh, but it seems to me that it's very valuable as well. Um, Legal design tends to change the way clients look at lawyers. So basically, as a lawyer, you're no longer the fun-stopping police, you know, <laughs> and the one that says no all the time <laughs> and that no one wants to, to listen to. Um, the legal division can actually be revealed as a driver for innovation, um, which is absolutely key in this um, in these troubled times, let's say. Um, and uh, in turn, this change of perception significantly increased lawyers' own satisfaction at work and therefore they're themselves even more engaged uh, in their work. That sounds really lovely because I think one of the reasons uh, lawyers can get a bit stressed, for example, or unhappy is this Distant we, distance we create with the, our language that nobody understands. So just by speaking the same language, we connect more easily to people around us. And that's really fascinating. Yeah, and I think uh, I think we're seeing a paradigm shift, uh, just like Marie explains and Catherine. And I think in a way it's uh, it's ironic and it's sad and it's to be honest unacceptable that. Today, you know, when we enter a contract, whether it's like downloading an app or getting an insurance or renting a bike, we're actually doing it without fully understand the terms or so even without reading the terms. So imagine that all of a sudden there's a company that actually wants you to understand the terms and the small prints and makes an effort to present it to you in a comprehensible way. I would just be like, wow, you know, I already love that company. <laughs> so I think... Customers will trust not only the product and the service, but the company as a whole. Because I think just being transparent sends a message that you have nothing to hide and that the terms are fair. So this leads to customers becoming more loyal. And I think there are studies showing this, but also it's also common sense. So do you want to do business with somebody who's not telling you everything, who's not showing all their cards? Just the thought of that makes me want to run away. So... Again, I think it's a paradigm shift where some companies have already realized this and it's making me feel really optimistic and this will become the new normal. And I think it's a movement where you don't want to be late for the party. Uh, and apart from that, I think when we know our rights and obligations, we're also more likely to behave in accordance with them. So that goes without saying. But I think if we use legal design and commercial contracts, there will be a lot fewer disputes concerning the implementation of the contract. So that means fewer calls to the support team, a lot fewer angry, frustrated customers. I think we're all familiar with that feeling of being a frustrated <laughs> customer. 
Um, so using legal design, I think you just have happier, more loyal customers and a way few, you know, disappointed customers calling support. So I can't wait for this to happen. But that sounds perfect because it seems that what Mari is saying and what are you, Vivek, is saying that actually when we are applying this approach, we can see that there will be diminished uh, transaction cost, uh, diminished uh, administrative cost, and also we can work on the risk management because I think it was really nice case what uh, what Mario was bringing on the table about Renault. Like if you're able to reduce hours even two or two hours uh, per worker per week, yeah, that that means week. that there's a lot of savings. So. It sounds like an incredible approach to law. And, and as Viveka, as you were mentioning, like the transparency, like it has such a wide reflection for the whole operations of company, whether it be like as regarding reputation or as you were saying that, of course, if you can understand the contracts and if the, if the communication is more transparent, it, it actually creates trust. Yeah. And you are probably yeah. then more willing to to support this kind of a firm also in the bad times, like now mm. what we are converting now. Mm. So it sounds like a win-win situation for everybody. Definitely. And I would definitely love to see legal design to become the mainstream, the new mainstream. I, I wish that I will see it in the all the fields of society, whether it be law, economics, whether it be practitioners, or just like a different communities or, or society as a whole. And, and, and I think that we definitely need to have more empowering approach to law. What about, how about you, Mario? You have any possible calls maybe for action for the future? Yes, sure. But what, what you just said um, uh, made me um, uh, think about Dan Jackson at the Legal Design Summit last year. I, I don't know if you attended. It was in Helsinki, but uh, you, you, you might have, have seen it on the network. So Dan reminded us um, that a couple of years ago when legal design started, so um, as Viveka said, it was uh, 2014 at, at Stanford. And, and Viveka, you were so lucky to be there when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to tell all about it. <laughs> but anyway, so Dan was, was reminding um, us that um, at the time when legal design emerged, um, you know, when people used to talk about it, most people would look at them as if they had three heads. I mean, it was completely weird and crazy and even ridiculous. And only a couple of years later, so that was 2019, um, the Legal Design Summit, um, well, most major law firm had sent their senior associates uh, to attend the Brain Factory before the summit for at least, what was it, four or five days? So, you know, <laughs> definitely things um, are changing at a fairly rapid pace. Um, so what seemed completely um, weird and crazy is almost becoming the new normal indeed. And, and you know, on, as far as I'm concerned, I'm already 
seeing a clear trend towards a deep transformation of legal documents and processes, but also mindset, as um, as Viveka pointed out. Mindset is absolutely critical. And I was so happy um, to see judges embracing legal design, for example. Um, we've been working since a couple of months uh, with the French National School for Judges, the ONM, uh, to apply legal design in judges' continuous education training. Um, so, you know, this is a major shift in terms of mindset. It's not just, you know, some funny stuff for funny people. <laughs> uh, this is quite institutional. You know, the ONM is is fairly innovative, but also, you know, they hold the fort. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I see a, a clear a clear shift, um, a structural shift shift uh, in that respect. We, we've also designed written submissions uh, for litigation cases, especially class actions. Um, and as we speak, actually, this afternoon after this podcast, um, I'm going to the French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, um, to, to uh, facilitate a workshop with minors, um, various age groups, because um, the CNIL wants to help designers creating interfaces which are more respectful of minors' rights. It's a very ambitious project, uh, very difficult to implement as well um, you know what does a child understand for example and and how can you explain uh, him or her uh, his or her rights and trigger action uh, when you know legal it's a really high social impact project so it has exactly. a high social impact that's, Very that's really high important Yes, yes, exactly. So it will be delivered by the 15th of December and everything will be shared on Creative Commons. So it's really for the greater good. Um, but as we speak, um, we're also redesigning a life insurance contract for a major global bank, um, which keeps amazing me, honestly. I, I feel so lucky to have this client because they're deeply transforming all, all of their customer-facing contracts throughout Asia. Uh, so they have a you know a whole um, panel of legal designers because obviously they need more than one agency to do that. <laughs> it's extremely ambitious, uh, but they simply want to entirely get rid of legal jargon and apply plain language and accessible design to gain a competitive advantage. And you know they start with Asia because this is where their headquarters are, but then it's going to be Europe and the rest of the world, obviously. So in a couple of years, intelligible, accessible and engaging legal documents will indeed be the new normal. Um, because once you will have seen, once most citizens or customers or even professionals will have seen a plain language complex contract that is made clear and accessible, you know, you won't go back to the previous uh, old uh, uh, impossible to understand template. So my call is to lawyers to make the first step, um, start saying what if, maybe, instead of but. <laughs> and, and my call is also to designers to make the complexity of the law accessible as a new playing field. And ultimately, I truly deeply believe that um, the clarity and accessibility of the law is a constitutional principle. <laughs> that's not a belief, that's a fact, but <laughs> it's also a matter of the type of democracy we want to live in. Do we want a democracy which gets 
dissolved in a way into the blind signing habits, especially when it comes to online privacy policies where citizens no longer believe in the law because they've so often ticked the, the, the box, I agree, but without reading, uh, without even thinking, actually. Or do we want to foster a system um, in which we bet on people's intelligence and empower all citizen, uh, all citizens to understand and act upon their rights? So this is really the, the time to transform the law. Wow, I love it. I love it. So inspiring. <laughs> It's true, it has to do with people's trust in law and, you know, it's a part of the democracy. And it's it's uh, weird that we have lost touch of that completely. So I also think it's really time to just reinvent legal documents, you know, to look at them with new eyes. And I think when we as lawyers write terms and conditions, for example, it's only with this legal perspective in mind, making sure we comply with the law and we're you know, limiting the liability of the company we work for or our clients. So that's how we're trained. And I've also been one of those lawyers. And I wouldn't say I've ever been very concerned or when I was working in a law firm, uh, concerned with, the, you know, whether or not the user, the reader, sorry, would uh, understand the text. So quite the opposite. It was never the role of a lawyer. So we're only taking care of the legal stuff. And uh, I think, you know, what if we consider those legal documents part of the user experience instead because in reality they are so many companies want to have like a cool user-friendly app or a fancy website but they totally forget about the legal documents so that's the call for action like if you are a company that has nothing to hide then let us know you know be transparent <laughs> let us know that what are you doing with our data how are you operating put your values into action and empower and respect the user because the GDPR even tells us, you know, that the privacy policy needs to be understandable. It's illegal if not, you know. So I think it's particularly important today when there's so much information about us collected and stored in the cloud. And as a woman, I track my period, my health on my smartphone. I even have my therapist online. So that's really sensitive stuff. And I want to know, you know, what happens with my data. Are you sharing it with somebody or you're selling it to somebody or, you know, is this call recorded? So these are really relevant concerns. And I think here's a call for action to empathize with and respect the users. Um, and then another call for action that I have is for us all to just stop and reflect a bit more. So I think when we're constantly keeping ourselves busy, we don't have time to, you know, take a step back and just see the broader picture. So in this case, you know, what's the point of a contract in the first place? And Marie touched upon this question, and I think it's, you know, for two parties to agree on something so they know how to behave. But how can you agree on something when you don't, when you can't even read the text? So I think this is just an example of how we lost touch, touch with uh, what matters, how we stop mm -hmm. respecting each other. And so it's a call for action to, yeah, reflect a bit more, care a little bit more, and Hopefully that shift in how you think will also affect other parts of your life. And maybe that will lead to a gentle revolution. <laughs> and then I want to finish off by saying that, you know, my dream is to see design thinking used more widely in, in our society. What if we can design a political system that actually gives our governments and our leaders the incentives to tackle all the global issues we see right now? 
I think that's something really urgent and super important. And we have the tools. We just, you know, need action. The activist is talking. <laughs> <laughs> but by hearing that, I think the really high legalist boilerplate contract services and products, they they should really watch out because it sounds that legal design is really coming. It's already in practice, but I mean, hopefully we will soon see it as a mainstream as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing your views on legal design today with us in the Hanken podcast for sustainability. And uh, I sincerely wish that our shared dream to see legal design to be used more and more in our society will become reality soon that we will be seeing it as more as Viveka was saying, whether it be in our politics or our more general, I, I think we are heading there. And as, as Maria said, the time is now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.